Green Street Joinery and the American Craftsman Podcast are proud to partner with Montana Brand Tools. Montana Brand Tools are manufactured by Rocky Mountain Twist in Montana, USA. With numerous patents dating back to the invention of the Hexshank system by our founders, we strive to produce accessories that add precision, flexibility, and efficiency to your toolkit. In addition to woodworking tools, we produce many high-quality cutting tools that are used by the aerospace, medical, automotive, and industrial markets. Our end product has a fit and finish that is beyond comparison. Montana Brand Tools are guaranteed for life to be free of defects in material and workmanship because we build these tools with pride and determination. For 10% off your order, visit MontanaBrandTools.com and use the coupon code AmericanCraftsman. All right, people, welcome back. Season yeah. 2, episode 2. Yeah, we made it. We made it. We uh, we haven't moved. Well, <laughs> we both peed. That's right. Since you saw us last week. Drinking coffee. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's early. early 9.40, but we're trying to get four episodes done today. Yeah. As well as four Patreon episodes. So, again, feels like we just talked about it, but we talked about it a week ago. Yeah. Uh, check out the Patreon. We're going to be giving you all the source material. You get, get your bonus show every week um, where we uh, we talk about something completely different, maybe more akin to, the, to last season's podcast will be sort of what we're doing over there. We might touch on the stuff that we talked about, but... Uh, we're going to take a whole different subject matter, yeah. more of a question and answer kind of thing. Um, so check that out if you're interested. Plus, we do the live streams and uh, and all that other good stuff. You can see the benefits over there on the Patreon page. Yeah. Um, but yeah, let's not waste any time. We'll get into uh, the next episode, which is a person of interest. Um, so episode one, we covered sort of the the who, what, when, where, and why of early American furniture. And now we're going to get into um, a person. Yeah, we'll start start building a picture. Mm-hmm. So actually, I had meant to open the podcast with this quote. Oh, okay. So but, let's, let's, but now I'll read it. Yeah. And uh, it's pretty long. And I, I've read it through like maybe a couple of days ago. But if I flub up, don't blame me. <laughs> Charles the First also attempted to establish the Episcopal Church on a firmer basis and to suppress Puritanism in England and Presbyterianism in Scotland, with the view of checking the rapid growth of Republican principles among the English people. Republican as in, uh, you know, the forming of a republic, not, right. not Democrat and Republican. Um, for the purpose of accomplishing this, the king appointed the zealous William Laud, Bishop of, Bishop of London, to the dignity of Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop, Archbishop Laud, who thus became the chief agent in a religious tyranny, which almost drove both England and Scotland to revolt, improved every opportunity to preach submission to the Lord's anointed in the repayment, sorry, in the payment of taxes, and he demanded from English Puritans and Scotch Presbyterians a strict conformity to his own rules for public worship. Archbishop, Arch, I don't know, I can't say that. Archbishop Laud's ecclesiastical tyranny led to a large Puritan emigration to New England. Patents were secured and companies organized for that purpose. The Puritans proceeded reluctantly to the place of embarkation, with their eyes looking longingly toward the distant refuge of the Pilgrim Fathers across the billowy deep, yet moist with tears as they turned their backs upon their native land and upon scenes that were clear to them, 
their hearts swelling with grief as, sh as the shores of dear old Mother England faded from their sight, yet rising to lofty purposes and sublime resignation as they abandoned home and country to enjoy the blessings of religious freedom in a strange land. They fully counted the cost of their forced migration, the peril, poverty, and hardships of their new homes in the American wilderness. That's from the book Library of World History, containing a record of the human race by Israel Smith Crane, Claire, sorry, Israel Smith Clare and Moses Coit Tyler, 1897. Man, that was difficult to read. Wow, well, you did a great job. What? So what? What was he saying? Uh, it's basically, you know, it's uh, sort of giving you a little perspective on the, you know, the feelings of these people leaving England, um, which you know we're going to get into into this person. We're going to have to give the background on the whole period in Great Migration. Sure. Um. So yeah. Um. There was a clamp down. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what I what I thought this highlighted was, you know, the emotion of these people sort yeah. of leaving. Yeah. You know, maybe the first half I could have deleted out, but uh, you know, like it says, the grief of leaving dear old Mother England. Oh yeah. I mean, it's no small task, just like today. Yeah. Um so yeah, let's let's get into it. Uh, so the person we're covering, Nicholas Disbro, uh, D I S B R O W E. He's actually junior, um, but he is he's known historically just as Nicholas Disbro. So I guess maybe we'll save the 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 uh, surprise for the end. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Nicholas Disbro Jr. He was born. June 16th, 1620, in Saffron Walden, Essex, England. And uh, I'll show you a little, a little picture of that on the map. Um, he was the son of Nicholas Disbro Sr., obviously, who mended pew and pulpit at the church. So he comes from a... Hey, that's like us. Yeah, a line, yeah we make him. <laughs> um, he comes from a line of, uh, of craft people. Uh, his mother was Mary Disborough, and his grandfather, William Disborough, was a joiner. So we talked about joiners in episode uh, episode one. Nicholas immigrated to Massachusetts Bay in the early 1630s as part of the Puritan Great Migration. So let's talk a little bit about what that is. We, we touched on it in episode one. Um, so the Puritan Great Migration was a, a 17th century migration of Puritans to New England, the Chesapeake, and the West Indies. Um, so we're going to focus on the New England New England portion. Um, in the early 1600s, England was in a, a period of religious turmoil. Uh, there was a climate of hostility towards religious nonconformists such as the Puritans. So that's, you know, Charles I um, is a key, key person in this. So the Puritans felt that the Church of England was too closely associated with Catholicism and it needed to be reformed. So we talked about it before. You had the separatist Puritans, and they thought the church was too corrupt and they wanted to just just get out and cut ties. And then you had the non-separatist Puritans and they thought that they could stay within the church and try and re reform it, you know, from within. Um, at the time, in England, church and state were one. So there was no separation That's of church right. and the state. The Anglican church. Right. Um, so if you, if you wanted to separate from the church, that was considered an act of treason. Yeah. So this was, you know, 
it was a hard decision for people whether to separate from the church or or remain part of it and try and reform it from within. Um, so the the separatists because they feared this retribution, this this uh, punishment for separating from the church. A lot of them they uh, they fled to um, was it the Netherlands? Yeah, where I thought I had it in here. Maybe not. Yeah, I, the Holland is where they went. Okay. So they uh, they fled to Holland, and um, even some, this is when they started thinking about going to the New World. So this, this is where the whole idea of escaping um, Europe, basically, and, and heading to the New World came from, because they, they were basically, they were probably going to be killed. That's yeah. the gist of it, or or locked up in London Tower. It's, it's amazing to think of in, in those terms, mm-hmm. right? Because... Um, you know, today, if we don't want to do something, just don't do it. <laughs> so, I don't think, you know, once once we're old enough to tell mom and dad we don't feel like going to church on Sunday, mm-hmm. we, we stop, stop going. going. <laughs> um, so in September of 1620, the Mayflower set sail for New England and they were financed by the Plymouth Company. Um, so this the Plymouth Company financed the trip in exchange for the pilgrims setting up a, 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 a colony and they would basically repay it by exporting fur and timber and fish back to England. Um, and that's the beginning of this Puritan great migration. So 1620 is when it, when it starts. There were, you know, there were people who came here before that, but not in, not in a way to set up a permanent, uh, living situation, really. Right. This was a business venture. Right. Uh, so in 1625, King Charles I ascends to the throne. We talked about um, King Charles II in the first episode with the um, the Carolean design. Uh, so in 1625, King Charles ascends to the throne, and his wife is a Catholic. So he, he favors Catholicism because of his wife, and... Um, there's increased hostility towards the Puritans because they they're against the Catholic Church. They they think it's you know um, corrupt. A, yeah, it's a bastardization <laughs> of you know what they believe in. <laughs> the more things change, the well, more yeah. they stay the same. Um, so as we got into it, the quote in 1633, King Charles I appoints William Laud as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Look at that! I said Archbishop correctly. Um. And the the goal of appointing this guy is to root out nonconformity in the church. So they're they're trying to basically, you know, control everybody and make sure that nobody is, you know, creating an uprising or just stirring the pot, really. Um, so the crackdowns by this William Law, the Archbishop, Arch, Arch, Archbishop, Archbishop, <laughs> I got the dry coffee mouth or something, Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, so... With these increased crackdowns, they uh, they the Puritans really start fleeing England to the New World, and they estimate you know thirteen thousand to twenty one thousand Puritans make the migration over to the New World. Um, the The Great Migration ended around sixteen forty to sixteen forty two with the establishment of the Long Parliament. So they the government in England got changed around, um, and it limited the powers of the king's advisors, William Laud. The being the um, you know the guy who was really hating on the Puritans, 
And the English Civil War broke out in 1642. Um, so people weren't leaving really anymore because mm-hmm. things were all all effed up in England, basically. Um, so, yeah, that's that's a little background on the Great Migration. It was, you know, it was a, a tough time for these people. Yeah, it reminds me of things that are going on and have gone on in different parts of the world, you know, with mm-hmm. the sort of religious extremism and things yep. like that. Yeah. And it kind of gives you an idea why we value our religious freedoms here in America so much. Yeah, I mean, it's the basis of the entire, you know, the roots of the country. Mm-hmm. People left where they were from because they were being persecuted for what they believed in. Uh, and they came here to get away from that. Right, right. I mean, they basically make your way of life illegal. Yeah. Um, yeah, to say, you know, well, if you believe what you've been believing this whole time now, that's treason. Right. We're going to lock you up in London Tower. It's not like giving somebody a hard time right. like by today's standards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it makes life more or less impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, religion... For some people now, it plays a, a a a huge role in their lives. But for the most part, now it's you know a, a um, an ancillary part of people's lives. Yes. Back then, it was everything. It was your yeah. whole identity. I mean, you lived, breathed, and ate your religion because yeah. it dictated everything that you did. As yeah. we saw with the Puritans, you know, talking in episode one, you know, their entire identity was created through the Bible, right, and the studying of the Bible, and. Art was always, uh, you know, one of the big focuses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Religion was always one of the big focuses of art. Right. Um, So those things are tied together. Yeah. Uh, So flash forward to 1636. Um, We're now in the New World. And the Puritan minister, Thomas Hooker, um, now he was from, I think, Cambridge, Cambridgeshire? Or no, uh, shit, I should know this. My sister lived there in England. This guy's church was down the street from where she lived. Wow. Uh, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, um, so they're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Thomas Hooker and 100 other uh, men, women, and children, they go overland to uh, overland to the Connecticut River, and they establish Hartford, Connecticut. Wow. It's not, you know, it's not Connecticut at the time, but it was the first English shut <laughs> <laughs> Have You're having a problem with the SHs I'm ha- today. Yeah, I'm having some issues. It's, it's a stamp coffee. Um, that I got a piece of almond stuck in my teeth. Uh, overland to the Connecticut River, they established Hartford, which is the first English settlement in what would become the colony of Connecticut. Um, so Nicholas Disbro was part of this group, and he's considered a founding father of Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. Hartford's the capital, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I think it we, is. We should know this. Yeah. We we went to school here. <laughs> it's not a uh, uh what's that other other big city in Connecticut? Yeah, we're Hartford uh, and we don't learn enough geography uh here in American school. Yeah. I'm going to type in Hartford. What's that other big like Stamford? Stamford, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Hartford is the capital of Connecticut. Okay, cool. Um right. So Nicholas Disbro, he served as a captain in the Pico War in 1637. I'll give you a little background on the Pico War. So um, 
there was all this pillaging going on by the natives on these settlements of people because obviously you know coming like, in hey man what like are you doing moving in, in on yeah moving <laughs> in on their land which is like what do you expect so uh obviously people are all riled up because you know they're coming in and pillaging in the most literal sense of the word burning down people's settlements and killing people and stuff like that so uh they assemble 70 men out of the 500 to 600 people that were scattered throughout the, you know, the Hartford Valley. Um, and they leave under the leadership of Major John Mason, and they sail down down the, uh, the I guess it's the Connecticut River, to um, Saybrook, which is in Massachusetts, I believe. And they're joined by 20 men from Boston and 70 Mohegans with their chief, uh, Yunkus. So on Friday, May 26, 1637, they, uh, they surprise this native stockade um, like right before dawn, and in two hours the place is totally burnt to the ground, and 700 Pico are dead. Ooh. Um, and here's a quote from this guy Cotton Mather, which oh, we know Cotton Mather. Yeah, remember this guy's name. Um, he's a pretty significant figure around the the early American period. But um, he says, "Twas a fearsome sight to see them, the Indians, thus frying in ye friar and ye streams of blood quenching ye same." And horrible was ye stink and scent thereof, but ye victory seemed a sweet sacrifice, and they gave praise thereof to God. Quite a, quite a poet. Man. So, yeah, he's saying, you know, they lit the place on fire. These people are burning. Burned literally alive. burning alive, and, and it stunk. But they were praising God because they, you know, took yeah. down the enemy. We're still mixed up, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. So the, the Pico War ended uh, with the Fairfield Swamp Fight, not to be confused with the Great Swamp Fight of, uh, was it King Philip's War or something? It was like a yeah. later on. Um, and it ended the, the violence with the natives for nearly a generation. Uh, on May 11, 1671, at the age of 59, Nicholas Disbro received 50 acres of land for his military service, and he was cleared of any um, you know further military obligations so he's starting fresh now 50 acres well he was 59 at the time oh my god yeah, so the that's my age the pico war was uh blah, blah, blah. front door non-stop emails instagram okay can't can't get away um yeah so he fought in the war in 1637 he's only what 1612 20 25 at the time mm-hmm um, not until he's 59 is he given this this land. So, so there's still hope for me. Well, <laughs> got 50 you got a little, yeah, maybe. Did you do any military service? <laughs> <laughs> I fought some battles. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so he lived at, at Lot 37 in Hartford. It was on the east side of, uh, of the road leading to the cow pasture, and now it's a Whole Foods. <laughs> Oh God! From what I can see on the map, that's basically where it is, where the Whole Foods is in uh, in Hartford, Connecticut. Makes me think of that Pretender song. I went back to Ohio, and my city was gone. I don't know that one. <laughs> um. So yeah, poor guy. Now his his spot is a Whole Foods. I guess better than like a Walmart. Yeah, or Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. Oh yeah. I don't know if they have those in Connecticut. So in, in uh, 1660, he got permission to build a 16-square-foot shop 
near the road on his property, which is they they called it a highway, which I don't know what the hell the highway was in 1660, but um, and rumor has it <clears throat> it may be considered like the first roadside stand. Um, now Nicholas Disbro Jr. he's famous for the Hartford Chest, um, and the Hartford Chest it uh it's this carved chest, and it's really the first piece that. Maybe the Hartford chest isn't the first, but the it's a, an example of this movement towards a chest of drawers like we talked about mm-hmm. in the first episode where the the really humble chest was moving towards like a dresser, which later turned into the low boys and high boys. Um, so it featured the Jacobian style split balusters that, that were applied to the, the Hartford chest. Um, well, one of the chest that we're going to use as an example doesn't have that, but these Hartford chests, they featured these split balusters that they applied to the to the chest, um, you know, in lieu of carvings, because it was, again, turning was easier yeah. than carving. So they turned them, split them, and applied them. Um, and they painted the split balusters black to sort of emulate using ebony. They had all kinds of other little turnings and small carvings, lozenges, um, diamonds that they applied, and same thing. They painted them black so that they uh, they resembled ebony. A um, lot of carved floral motifs, tulips, which is a, an influence from Holland. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's that's because the Puritans first fled there, and that's where they sort of picked this up. But yeah, lots of tulips, sunflowers, which I think is a more um, was a more American thing, and uh, lots of leafage and scroll scroll work. They had drawers at the bottom and plain tops. The pop, the tops were typically made from pine, and the chest itself was made from oak. Um, either English oak that was brought here or, or, you know, American oak. Yeah. Uh, they were frame and panel construction and, uh, a similar sort of chest was the Hadley chest and that was in Massachusetts, but a little later, 1675, I have 1875, um, written here, 1675 to 1740 was the time frame for the Hadley chest. Um, and yeah, like I said, it, it shows the chest becoming more of a chest of drawers. Uh, I'm going to read an excerpt here from the Hartford chest. I don't know why I punished myself like this. Published by the Tercentenary Commission of the State of Connecticut Committee on Historical Publications. So the uh, 300-year commission. This is from 1934. Dr. Luke Vincent Lockwood, an authority on colonial furniture who has written much on the subject some years ago, made the important discovery of a very beautiful carved chest, now in his possession, which bears the name of the maker written on the back of one of the drawers, probably a unique example. This is a two-drawer chest with the front surface of which is entirely covered with flat carving of excellent workmanship, the design consisting principally of the conventionalized tulip. Hmm. The inscription in ancient style and archaic spelling reads thus, Mary Allen's chist, or chest, cut and joined by Nick Disborough. Mary Allen, who was the daughter of Colonel John Allen, Secretary of Connecticut Colony, was born in Hartford in 1657 and married to William Whitney in 1686. Nicholas Disborough was born in Essex, England in 1612. He appears to have been a, quote, citizen of credit and renown who owned property in Hartford in 1639 and lived on Burr Street, now North Main Street, where in 1660 he obtained permission to erect a small shop on the highway. 
He was of Captain John Mason's company in the expedition against the Picos. Dying in 1683, he left an estate of $210. I guess that says pounds, because um, I guess that's sort of yeah, what they Yeah, that's what they used back yeah, then. 210 pounds, a very considerable sum of the times. The inventory filed with the court included a number of joiner's tools. A very careful examination and comparison of the handwriting would indicate that this inscription was by the hand of John Allen. The piece was probably a dower chest, ordered and constructed for an adorned baby girl, a common custom. And because of its beauty and excellence, the father desired that the future owner should be informed as to its origin and share his admiration for the valuable article. Would that more, uh, would that more owners might have had a similar inspiration? For at least two centuries, there were many joiners and cabinet makers scattered about in towns and villages of Connecticut and Massachusetts. They often worked entirely by themselves and few had more than one helper or apprentice. Their product was excellent, but their output was so limited that they never got into history, and thus we have no knowledge concerning their identity. Even as late as the middle of the 18th century, the labeled and actually identified articles of furniture, even more important pieces, are rarely found. So yeah, they're saying that they have examples that are earlier. They just don't know where they came from. Right, so they guys were not labeling, you know, they weren't... Um, signing their work, basically. In this particular field, on certain occasions, tradition, usually unrecognized as evidence, may be helpful. For in early times, when the only means of transportation was by horses or even oxen, people moved about very little. The personal histories and characteristics of all were known to their fellow townsmen. They knew everybody's business. <laughs> and the exploits of divers, important or peculiar citizens, or the achievements of remarkable or unusual artisans were transmitted to the oncoming generation. Thus, their reputations persisted. Uh, also, regarding the origin of certain articles of furniture, it is to be ascertained beyond doubt that a, uh, an, a special piece has long been in the ownership of a family whose forebears have resided for a hundred years or more in that immediate locality. It is fair and proper supposition to conclude that it was produced in that vicinity. Nine Hartford was set... Oh, sorry... Hartford was settled by a robust, vigorous people, and the sturdy oak is emblematic of their character. So it was not idle imagination to compare the Hartford chest and its unchanging integrity to its makers and their fellows. Um, it doesn't say it in here, but in the 20s, you know, when this thing was discovered, I guess by uh, Luke Vincent Lockwood, it was the earliest known piece of American, of provable American furniture. Right. So... Um, 1680, I think they say it was built and they don't have anything that is, you know, inscribed like that, that dates prior. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, all those other pieces are just lost to history as far as, you know, right. who created them. Mm -hmm. But if you watch like the antiques road show and stuff like that, now you have scholars who can identify the, the, the general time and place yeah yeah right and that's kind of what this article was saying mm -hmm. and this is a it's i don't even know 50 100 pages that and it's all about the hartford chest yeah Pretty interesting you can find it on google books and it'll be it's in the source i mean source that's the thing it it you kind of said it in passing but the hartford chest is really significant not just because we know that uh nicholas disbrell made it mm-hmm 
I mean, it's a it's sort of a landmark piece of furniture. Yeah, and it's funny. It's one of those things that I had never heard of before. <laughs> Me um, either. But you, if you talk to people who are, it's funny. I just got an email from the Hartford, our insurance company. Uh, um, if you talk to people who are a little more educated on the history of American furniture, some guys that we know, um, like yeah, Hartford Chest, yeah, it's yeah, it's, you know, big. it's huge, it's a big like, deal. Nicholas Disbro is a you know a huge name. Um, we had never heard of him, so. Funny thing is, in in 1683, he was charged with witchcraft. <laughs> um, but the charges were dropped oh before his death in the same year. So the year of his death, he was charged as a wit, being a witch. Oh, man. And guess who wrote about it? Cotton Mather. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Cotton Mather, he was like a, a hugely renowned Pur- uh, Puritan clergyman. Um, and so he re- recounts this whole... This whole witchcraft situation. In the year 1683, the house of Nicholas Desborough, you see the spelling, multiple yeah. different spellings of the um, the last name. Uh, in, 1860, in 1683, the house of Nicholas Desborough at Hartford was very strangely molested by stones, <laughs> by pieces of earth, by cobs of Indian corn, and other such things from an invisible hand thrown at him, sometimes through the door, sometimes through the window, sometimes down the chimney and sometimes from the floor of the room though very close over his head and sometimes he met with the and sometimes he met with the what sorry and sometimes he met with the in the shop i don't know cotton the yard the barn and in the field there was no evidence in the motion of the things thus thrown by the invisible hand and though others beside the man happened to sometimes be hit they were never hurt with them only the man himself once had pain given to his arm and once blood fetched from his leg by these annoyances and a fire in an unknown way kindled consumed no little part of his estate. This trouble began upon a controversy between Desborough and another person about a chest of cloths, which the man apprehended to be unrighteously detained by Desborough, and it endured for divers months, but upon restoring of the cloths, thus detained, the trouble ceased. <laughs> So you'll see uh, that's some story. Yeah, you'll see uh, you know some parallels here with the Salem witch trials. Yeah, um, which some of his subsequent family members were charged as witches. Um, where yeah, this guy thinks that he stole a a chest of clothes, and now all of a sudden the guy's a witch. Right. Yeah. Then the clothes get returned, and he's not a witch anymore. It's it's a, a form of blackballing. Right. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Can't escape the uh, the the persecution of being a Puritan, and then now you're a witch. Yeah, it's almost like the cancel culture we have today. Yeah. Um, another thing that he is famous for is the Winthrop Great Chair, and uh, again, there's going to be I'm going to be putting up pictures um, of all these things. So, uh, it belonged to the Connecticut Colony Governor John Winthrop Jr. around 1660 to 1675. And he was a uh, a really well known physician in New England, probably the the best best known. Um, and he was an alchemist, so he studied alchemy, which was a precursor to chemistry. But it sort of blended like magic and science and religion all into one. Um, not something that you would associate with Puritans per se. But um, his chemical rather than herbal medicines were thought to have been revealed to man by God. <laughs> so that's why you know he really was. Um, was held very highly 
And he had a, an extensive scientific library. He had books by Galileo. He had a telescope. Again, things that you don't really... I mean, Galileo was, was another persecuted person. You don't oh, associate yeah. uh, Puritans with being, you know, maybe that open-minded. But I think, you know, we have a little bit of a skewed view of the Puritans. Um, and it's theorized that the motifs in the chair might have astrological influences. So there's all these mm. round... Um, you know, these concentric motifs in the back of the chair. And, you know, they think that there may be this astrological sort of influence. on That, that. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so Nicholas died August 31st, 1683. Right after being accused of being a witch. Went out in a blaze of glory. Yeah. So he led a, he led a pretty interesting life. Um, I mean, he's, yeah. he's a founding father of Hartford, Connecticut. He, he, <laughs> Created this chest that, you know, has this huge historical significance and pretty cool. Um, and as we got into researching, um, you know, seeing these different spellings of the last name, I, I see D-I-S-B-O-R-O-U-G-H. I'm thinking, Disboro, that's my grandmother's maiden name. Turns out this guy's my ninth great-grandfather. Amazing. Yeah, so I have a direct lineage to... Um, this guy, Nicholas Disborough. That's funny, isn't it? Like a huge, huge coincidence that had we not messed around with the format of the podcast, would have never, never known. <laughs> it was like, this guy's name keeps popping up. I guess he's somebody uh, mm -hmm. of importance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see, like, the the source material here, I mean, it's just, this is just a a drop in the well. There's... So many papers and books, and it's crazy. Yeah, he's he's a prominent figure mm -hmm. in not just uh, um, furniture, but in American history. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, to found, be a founder of Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah. You know, um, you know an early colonist, fights in the wars, mm -hmm. goes on and creates... Something that's foundational to what we do. Yeah. And inspired a lot of, you know, of furniture down the down the line. Mm -hmm. with the Hadley chest and then, you know, the evolution of that. So yeah, I mean, really interesting to to find out. So what did it feel like to learn you have uh, have it in the blood? Uh, it was pretty shocking because I was I'm not aware of anyone in the family who, you know, makes furniture, let alone, uh, you know, does even carpentry, let alone make furniture. Um, I mean, we're, again, we're talking about 350 years ago. Um, so I'm sure somewhere in there, there's somebody, but yeah, I mean, it's not even like, it's like a cousin or, I mean, it's just, yeah. a, it's a direct line. Um, right there. So it's crazy. Yeah. You could trace your roots back to the, the formation of the country too. Yeah, I mean, go all the way back to uh, William Disborough, his grandfather, which, um, you know, 1500s. That's amazing. Yeah. It's cool that we have the ability to search this stuff now, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to go back further, but it, the, the trail stops with William, his grandfather. Mm. Um, so you also got some witchcraft in your family history, too. Yeah, yeah I mean, it got... <laughs> Uh, you know, 
furniture making and joinery going back almost 500 years. That's right. You know, back into the late, who know? I don't know what year uh, William was born, but I think he died in the, the very beginning of the 1600s. And all these people lived to be really old, which is bizarre. Yeah. Um, you know, he was, uh, let's see, he, was, he died in 18, in, I keep wanting to say 18 because 1600 seems so long ago. 1683, he was born, he was, so he was 71. 71 in the 1600s, that's fucking old. Yeah. Like that cabinet maker we were talking of, uh, he, he only lived into his 30s. Yeah. I think that the average lifespan was like 40, 45. Um, so, yeah, I mean, mid-1500s we can trace back. Wow. Yeah, so if you lived to be 42 and you were an apprentice till you were 21, that would kind of be like being an apprentice today till you're, you're 40 or 45. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holy cow. So, yeah, it uh, it turned my world a little upside down there for a couple of days. Yeah, we kept uncovering more and more facts, too. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, it was just a furniture connection. Mm-hmm. Then we started looking into his personal history. He's like, yeah, founding father of Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> like furniture royalty here. Yeah. We've got, uh, got big shoes to fill now. Oh, yeah. Oh, excuse me. So uh, that was quite a bomb to drop there, uh, being related to the great Nicholas uh, Disborough. Yeah. That's all I got on Nicholas Disborough. <laughs> <laughs> How are we doing on time for this episode? Oh, we're a little light this episode. All right. Well. I mean, you did touch on a few things that uh, we could go back over. And and um, yeah. uh, one thing that caught my ear was that uh, the Puritan minister's name was Thomas Hooker, which mm-hmm. that's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> Maybe he's the, uh, the creator of the term. Yeah. Yeah, so I actually I looked a little bit into him and because uh, I was trying to find out what ship Disborough came over on. Uh, now, Thomas Hooker came over on the Griffin, it was called. And uh, what year was it? I think 1634, which kind of lines up with the times because Disborough fought in the Pico War in 1637. He owned land by 1639. So we know he was here prior to 1637. Um, but couldn't I couldn't get a full manifest of the Griffin. There's only a, a partial, um, and he's not on it. So, and what year are we talking? I think 1630, 34. Man, it's amazing that they have things like that. Yeah, because I've done tried to do a little research into my own family tree, and I can trace my grandparents, uh, but that's as far as I can get. Mm-hmm. And uh, I even went back to. Uh, place where my mom and my and her parents, my grandparents were born. <laughs> it was <laughs> a dusty archive. Yeah. You know, I part of it's a language barrier too, mm-hmm. but um they didn't keep the the English were great record keepers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's crazy. Uh it's it is amazing. So that's uh, what I mean. What else can we take from the the Hartford chest? I mean, why 
Why do you think it's such an important and prominent piece? Well, I think mostly it's it's rise to fame is just the fact that it's it's so easily um, pinpointed as who built it and when. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like we said, all this other stuff is sort of just a guessing game. Yeah, you can't definitively say you can you know suppose all of these things, but you can't definitively say okay, this was built by so and so in Ipswich, Massachusetts. No, this is there's hard facts to to prove um, who built it and when, you know, because that we have records of who Mary Allen was. Was it Mary Allen? Yeah. Um, when she lived, who John Allen was. These are all people who there's history on the names. Um, so I think that's why it, it, it probably wasn't the nicest chest, you know, because there was other people making, you know, really intricately carved things like this. Um, but it's because it was, you know, prove provably a very early piece with a name attached to it. I think that's where the real significance is. And he's a, he was a pretty prominent guy too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he Um, was, you know, fought in the Pico war. He was a, a captain in the Pico War, um, you know, the whole witchcraft thing and, I mean, being a founding father. So there's a lot of history on the guy aside from that, whereas some of these other guys might have just been, you know, they've been yeah. lost to time sort of. Right. And there's the you mentioned as well the low output of yeah. these craftsmen and sort of like, the they didn't feel a need to mark their pieces because everybody, everybody knew who they were. <laughs> right, yeah, people were in the town. It's like, yeah, that's that's Smith's cabinet shop, and yep. uh, you know his dad was there before he was. Mm-hmm. Um, so of course that's a Smith uh, yeah. chest. They weren't thinking about us four hundred years in the future. No, um, and you know there is some controversy about the inscription if it's a forgery. Mm-hmm. I've read in a couple of places, but um, they, you know, I also read that it matches up with John Allen's handwriting. So yeah, you know, I mean, who's he trying to bullshit? I mean, did you figure when this thing comes about in the 30s, the 1930s, there's really no impetus to create. Yeah, what's the end game there? Right. They just picked this guy. Oh, we're going to pick uh, Nicholas Disbro. Yeah, because it doesn't really create. I mean, it's a it's a museum piece, but it, at the time, it probably doesn't create instant value. Like, no, and I think it only sold for like $4,000. <laughs> so, <laughs> meanwhile. No insane. Uh, yeah. Insane sale. No, you know, Antiques Roadshow, $100,000 chest. It's, right, right. You know, it's still um, a humble piece. When I was uh, searching through the archives of, like, the Met Museums, there were pieces that they were mostly later pieces, mm-hmm. you know, from... Like, 1700. Yeah, 17, early 1800s, where they start getting into the high-dollar yeah, yeah. antique stuff. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I've been looking forward to this episode because it, it was really so enjoyable yeah. to, to take this little trip. It was definitely interesting. Um and man, laborious research because <laughs> you know you just have to pour through all these recounts of things that happened and try and figure out you know what's what has been twisted a little bit, what yeah. has in it's dry and wordy. There's a lot of contradictory information in terms of like dates and stuff. Like 
um, stuff, even just years of birth and death and stuff like that. You know, some places have, uh, you know, that he was born on, uh, where is it? June, was it June 16th? Wouldn't it be wild if it was uh, your birthday? Well, the funny thing is, he lived on lot 37. My my address is 37. Yeah. Um, June 16th, 1612. Some places had, you know, he was born around 1613, or he was born in, just in 1612. So it's hard because you have to you have to try and you know write this story with all of this information that's like not 100. percent Oh yeah, people. I mean, people were born at home. My mom was born at home in Sicily, mm -hmm. and her birthday is sort of unknown. Yeah, it's like, well, <laughs> I mean, you kind of know the general time, right? Frame. It's like it was springtime. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was sometime in early February well, yeah. this child came into the world. <laughs> yeah, because you know, history was for the most part oral. Um, yeah. You know, we're saying the English kept good records, but um, not everything was. Yeah, not everything was from the common common people. Yeah. Um, right. He was he was uh, his father well known, or was it? Did the name kind of become notable with Nicholas? Yeah. No, I don't think there were really anyone um, anyone crazy, and he wasn't nobody until. Yeah. I mean, he was uh, like he had a decent estate when he died and stuff like that. But he wasn't a, you know, a highfalutin person. He was a cabinet maker, a furniture maker. Yeah. Um, so he didn't have any notoriety really until, until he died. He was known within Hartford as, right. Because you know, everybody knew everybody. I mean, how many people were there? Um, but yeah, no real notoriety until, um, the 1920s. I, I wonder what kind of, um, esteem you, uh, gained for being a quote-unquote founding father of a, a settlement which became a town which became a city yeah i wonder I how don't know big how, of a deal it was i don't know how big hartford even was by 18 you know 1880 mm -hmm. you know you're talking uh what 40 years later it probably didn't grow that much mm -hmm. you know everybody was a founding father basically that's out of the out of the thousand people that live there, a hundred of them. <laughs> so everybody's grandpa was a founding father. Yeah. That's that's sort of my question. I wonder if it sounds bigger to us because you know. Oh yeah, it's, I think it definitely does. Then it was just yeah. Well yeah, of course I'm a. Uh, yeah, I brought my mule and my card yeah, here. I mean, and we're all everybody then was a founding father of the country because it had, didn't even exist yet. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah. But yeah, it was a crazy, uh, crazy coincidence to. I'll say. Out. Like when you first said, "Ah, that's like my grandma's name." It's spelled a little differently. It. I didn't have the slightest inkling it would lead here. Yeah. Well, yeah. Until I saw the alternate spelling. That's when I was like, "Hmm." And my sister did the ancestry.com research, so. There you go. Yeah. All right. Well, that's all we got for you this week, guys. Season two and uh, episode two in the books. Yeah, it's on, it's ten thirty. We checked in last time at uh, nine thirty. Yeah, something yeah. like that. We're cruising along. 
Yeah. It's going to be a marathon of a day. <laughs> going to be several weeks' time in, in your time. We're, we're going to be a little bit hoarse by the end of it. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, we hope you liked the episode. Check out the YouTube. Check out the Patreon. Yeah. Uh, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Yeah, reviews are good. We yeah. can learn what we're doing. That way, you know, you can share this information with more people. So, um, yeah, hope you enjoyed, and we'll see you next week. All right. Yeah.